All right, open your Bibles with me to John 19, uh, John chapter 19, and uh, I, as well as the five others who were gone with me uh, for the past two Sundays, uh, can gladly say it's good to be back. Um, it's good to be sent, but um, there was a tinge of uh, maybe onset of depression coming with the storm, like, hey, if we had to miss three weeks in a row, that's not good, and so we... Uh, we're certainly thankful that uh, the Lord spared the storm here in our area, and uh, it's really, really good to be back uh, and to worship together uh, this morning. Continuing in this series in John, uh, turning the corner from the crucifixion, moving toward the resurrection next week, and this morning looking at two particular events that happened uh, after Jesus died. And I want us to to uh, let the let this framework be the way that we think through this text, that for Christ, there was actually glory in death. For the Lord Jesus, there was glory in death. And the world sees the event of the crucifixion as an immense tragedy. Essentially, a good man died for crimes he didn't commit. Words like injustice, unfair, tragic, all of these types of things would be used to characterize the event of the crucifixion. But what the unbelieving world doesn't realize, however, is that the event of the cross was and is a triumphant event. Jesus died, truly died, as we'll see this morning, and his death wasn't some tragedy. It was actually a moment of triumph. And so to set the stage for where we're going to be starting in verse 31, let's back up and read a few of the verses that we've already considered, starting in verse 28, and then we'll read through the end of chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight, so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. There are two scenes here in our text. One is the actual death account of Jesus and verification of that death, but then also the burial of Jesus. The actual event of Jesus dying, remember, John records just in one simple verse in verse 30 by saying, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. But then, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John goes on and unpacks some of the events that surround the 
death and the moments thereafter. And so we'll consider these thinking about the fact that for Christ there was glory and death. And so the first thing that we'll see in, in verses 31 through, through 37 is that there is actually glory for Christ in his death. Jesus demonstrates power over death by his death. And there are two parties, as we have seen throughout these past few weeks, who are opposed to Christ. We have the Jews and we have the Romans, and we see both of them at play here in these events. With the Jews, we see that God uses the self-righteous, false religion of the Jews to accomplish his plan. We've seen this before, where Jesus was arrested, Jesus was tried before the Sanhedrin, and then brought to the Romans to receive the sentence of death. And all along, we're reminded that the Jews are simply accomplishing the plan of God. And so in verse 31, we, we're, we're told that the Jews are worried about this day of preparation. Since it was a day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken. They're worried about defiling the Passover. This high Sabbath that, that John's referring to here in verse 31 is the Passover that's to come, the, the one Sabbath of the year that was the most important for the Jew. And so their concern is that they're going to leave this guy hanging on a tree, and according to the law, hanging, a guy hanging on a tree is going to defile their Passover. And so the Jews' concern here continues to remain controlled by religion. They've accomplished what they've set out to do, right? They wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted to see Jesus dead, and now that is accomplished, and now their hypocrisy just goes to another level. It's expounded, and Interestingly, this is the last action of the Jews in John's gospel. It's as if God is done with the Jews. He has used them to accomplish what he used them to accomplish, and then they fade from the scene. And once we transition to the resurrection account in chapter 20, the Jews are somewhat of an afterthought. So Jesus died on Friday. The next day is the Sabbath for the Jew. The, the Saturday is the Sabbath. And the Jewish day began at sunset. And so when we think about the three days that Christ referred to, we know Friday is one day, Saturday is the next day, and then Sunday, the first day of the week, is the day that Christ comes out of the grave. But this day is the day of preparation where the Jews are preparing for this high Sabbath, this high, this high Passover Sabbath. And they're simply following their own law, just in a misdirected fashion. Deuteronomy chapter 21 we read, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by, by, punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body now shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. Remember, the Jews could have stoned Jesus, but they didn't want him stoned. They wanted him to die a cursed death, and so they had him hung on a tree. And so the hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. And so for a person who is hung on a tree... This person was under God's curse, and to leave him hanging on this tree overnight would, in effect, desecrate the land. And for the Jew, this would have been doubly offensive in their mind, the, the, the hanging on the tree, but also the desecration would occur on this special Sabbath. And so in this statement, in the, in the statement that John records where the Jews just go and ask Pilate to break the legs of those who were hanging on the cross so that they could take him away, we, we we're reminded that this is the full force of man-made self-righteous religion. Self-righteous religion thrives in the heart of dead men. They're guilty of murder. They have conspired to kill an innocent man. They are guilty of murder. 
And they wanted him to die on a tree as a curse. But they didn't want him to remain and defile their own religious experience. It's interesting to note here that those who were most responsible for the death of Christ were deeply, deeply religious people. Deeply religious people. However, what the Jews don't realize is their desire to keep the Sabbath undefiled actually works in accordance to God's calendar. Friday is day one. Jesus died on day one. Saturday is the Sabbath. Sunday is day three. Resurrection is coming. And so Jesus has to go into the grave on Friday. And so God simply exploits the attempt of the Jews to further desecrate Christ for their own religious preferences to accomplish his own plan. And so God uses self-righteous false religion to accomplish his plan. Also, in this same section, we see that God uses worldly powers to accomplish his plan. So they ask that if, if the legs of the, those crucified could be broken, the soldiers come and they break the legs of the first guy, presumably, presumably one of the thieves who were going back and forth, one of the criminals who were going back and forth in some of the other accounts. They break the legs of the next guy, but they come to Jesus and Jesus doesn't need his legs broken because he's dead. If you remember the, 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 the way that the death of a cross works, you die essentially by suffocating. You can't pick yourself up to, to get a breath. And so you would, you would push up on the spike that's driven through your ankles to get air into your lungs, and then you would fatigue and fall. And eventually the person on the cross would die from asphyxiation. And so what the Romans would do to expedite this, this death process is they would go with a large mallet, not just a little hammer, but a large mallet, and they would bust the femurs of those who were hanging on the cross so that they could no longer pick themselves up because of the pain. However, when they come to Jesus, they find that he's already dead. Jesus needs no one's help to come to a point of death. Death on a cross would actually sometimes take two to three days, but for Jesus it was merely hours, if we remember how the event unfolds. Which reminds us that Jesus, in fact, scheduled his own death. Nobody took his life away from him. He freely laid down his life. Now let's be clear. These men who came to check on those who were crucified, they were experts in execution. They were expert executioners, and Jesus was dead ahead of schedule, and they're somewhat surprised, it seems, as they come to Jesus, because when they come to him, verse 33, they see he's dead. They didn't break his legs, but just to be sure, to make sure he's dead, one of the soldiers pierced pierced the side of Jesus with a spear, and at once there comes out blood and water. And so they pierce his side. He's dead. There's no need to break his legs. Jesus really died a human death. It reminds us of of, of chapter 1 and verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was not exempt of anything that we would experience when it comes to death. But he died a real, true, actual human death. And in this death account, we're reminded that the religious powers and the worldly powers are both subject to the divine plan of God. Both subject to the divine plan of God. And so the Jews, they're not operating in some sphere that God is saying, okay, I hope they figure this out, nor the Romans operating in some sphere that God is saying, I hope they figure this out and all this can align to accomplish our purpose. No, not at all. But the Jews are working to accomplish God's plan just as the Romans are working to accomplish God's plan. Then John adds this interesting commentary in verse 35 when he writes, he who saw it has borne witness. He's referring to himself here. He says his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. He adds this commentary to assure the reader that both of these actions, 
Both of these actions that he just referred to, the day of preparation and not breaking the legs and the piercing of the side, are actually in fulfillment of Scripture. There are no surprises here. There's only sovereignty. Verse 36. Verse 36, he said, These things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Not one of his bones will be broken. Psalm 34.20, a messianic psalm, reads, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. There's also a shadow, we'll come back to this toward the end of the sermon, but there's a shadow here also toward the Passover. The Passover lamb had to be offered without blemish. According to Exodus 12, verse 46, it shall be eaten, It the Passover lamb shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. Numbers 9, 12, they shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any of its bones. According to all the statute for the Passover, they shall keep it. And so Jesus, according to Scripture, couldn't have any of his bones broken. And so when the executioners come with the mallet to shatter the legs of Jesus, just like they'd done the other two guys, they realize, well, there's no need in wasting any energy in swinging on this guy's legs. He's already dead. Not knowing that the fact that he was already dead, none of his bones are going to be broken, is actually fulfillment of Scripture. And so one fulfillment of Scripture is verse 36, not one of his bones will be broken. Another fulfillment of Scripture is verse 37, where he refers to Zechariah 12.10, they will look on him whom they have pierced. They will look on him of whom they have pierced. Jesus had to be pierced. And there are several medical explanations that go along of why this is water and blood. And is is it mystical? Is it spiritual? Is it physical? John just refers to the fact that at once there came out blood and water. Pointing to the fact that the guy on the cross whose legs did not have to be broken was actually dead. Fully dead, completely dead. And according to scripture, Jesus had to be pierced. Why does John include this, this commentary here? He's including it because in verse 35 he says that we would believe, that you also may believe. He's telling the truth so that we, the reader, would be able to believe. And so we have to remember that all the things that are going on in and around the death of Christ are going on under divine control. And this is actually the perspective of the early church and it has to be our perspective also. And so just... Let's just roll this truth, this theology into practice here. There's nothing that goes on in my life or in your life that is outside of God's control. Nothing. There's, there's, there's nothing that's going to come your way. There's nothing that's going to come my way that will catch God off guard. God is orchestrating all of human history, including our lives, to glorify himself. Even the death of Christ. And so they didn't have to break his legs because he was already dead, but they weren't going to break his legs because Scripture said none of his bones will be broken. They had to pierce his side just to be sure he was dead, but they had to pierce his side because Zechariah 12.10 said they will look on him whom they have pierced. And so this clearly reminds us that as children of God, nothing comes our way that is outside of God's control. This was the theology of the early church. We we read this as, as... Persecution begins to come upon the church in Acts chapter 4. This is the way that they prayed. For truly in this city they, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So everybody included in this event we've been studying for a few weeks now. 
Herod, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, Jews. Why are they gathered together? This is, this is how the church prayed back to God. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And so as the early church, John included in this prayer meeting in Acts chapter 4, actually John was one of the one who, ones who was arrested that, that, that ended up in this prayer meeting in Acts chapter 4. Their theology was such that all of these powers, religious and worldly, were gathered together simply to accomplish your plan. And so as Christians, we don't, we don't view the world like the world. We view the world through the lens of Scripture, knowing that all things are working to accomplish God's plan. And so we see glory for Christ in His death. Secondly, we see glory for Christ in His burial. We see the glory of Christ in His burial. Jesus demonstrates power over death by His death, but He also demonstrates power over death by His burial. And so typically what would happen is Romans would leave dead bodies on a cross for days. For days, for, for a couple reasons. One is kind of a, a fun spectacle for the executioners to say, yeah, that, that was my guy. But also as a deterrent in society. To say, his crime is this. If you go this same route, this is what will happen to you. And so they would, they would leave these things, leave, leave people hanging on, on the cross to deter crime. And then after they had gotten their time out with them, they would just simply throw them in a ditch or throw them in a pit and let them be simply wasted away. And, and after, they would become an afterthought. They'd become an afterthought. And as they become an afterthought, the deterrent would run its full course. So if I am crucified for theft, I hang on the cross for theft, and the implication is, don't steal. Because if you steal, this happens to you. If I am crucified for speaking against Caesar in Rome, which would be the most common reason for someone being crucified, that was the accusation that the Jews actually brought toward Christ to, to seal the deal for him, then the implication is, if you speak out against Caesar and Rome, if you try to stir up an uprising, this happens to you as well. And then they would so devalue the bodies after the, crucif after the event of the crucifixion and birds of prey would come and pick at them and just all these different things would happen. They would just take them outside of the city and just throw them. Throw them into a pit, throw them into a ditch, no big deal. A mass grave of sorts. However, at this point, the Jews are done with Jesus. And so they didn't really have concern for his dead body, but they knew according to, to their law that if this guy stayed on the tree, he would actually defile their land. And what's coming? Sabbath. Not just any Sabbath, but as, according to what John tells us in, in verse 31, it's the high Sabbath, the Passover Sabbath. And so they wanted him they wanted him dead, but they, they also didn't want their land defiled. And so their, their work was complete. And so we see here two characters come into the story. One, Joseph of Arimathea, and then Nicodemus. We've not heard of Joseph up to this point. We have heard of Nicodemus up to this point, previously in chapter 3 and in chapter 7. Joseph, not so. And what we see in these two, in these two characters is that the gospel of Christ, the story of Christ, the redemption of Christ, really, really causes cowards to become courageous. 
The, the death of Christ and the work of Christ truly changes a man. So these two characters, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, let's just consider what the other gospel writers teach us about Joseph of Arimathea. One, uh, in Matthew chapter 27, he's referred to as a rich man. Uh, he's, he's well off. He's a disciple of Jesus, but he's, he's in secret for fear of the Jews. And in fact, some part of the death of Christ had to connect with a rich person because as Lucas read just a moment in our scripture reading time, Isaiah 53, 9, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. So he's a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea is. And Mark 15, he's referred to as a respected member of the council. So he's part of this religious council who has been the root cause for the crucifixion of Christ. Luke 23, he's referred to again as a member of the council, but he's, Luke refers to him as a good and righteous man. And that he did not consent to the ruling of the council to crucify Jesus, or to kill Jesus. And so then, then John comes here and refers to him as a disciple of Jesus, but a secret disciple for fear of the Jews. He would have been included in this, in this category of people who followed after Jesus but didn't do so openly because they were afraid of the Jews. But there's something that changes for Joseph of Arimathea at the crucifixion of Christ. Mark records it this way, Mark fifteen forty three. Joseph, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So there was something about the crucifixion of Christ that caused Joseph to change. He goes from being a secret disciple, a secret follower of Jesus, to one who actually throws off caution and goes straight to Pilate and says, I want his body. I want his body. And so God uses these two fearful disciples to fulfill his plan. You remember the story of Nicodemus from chapter 3. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night right? He comes to Jesus at night because he is fearful of his counterparts in the council. He is a member of the Sanhedrin as well, a Pharisee, and has been a a secret disciple. It's It's a conversation where Jesus tells him, you must be born again to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on with this interchange with, with Nicodemus. And so Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea come as formerly fearful disciples who now are setting aside the fear of man for the love of Christ. Now, let's, let's be clear. Let's, let's be real clear here. They don't fully understand the plan. Resurrection doesn't really fit into their framework. They, they don't understand the plan. They don't, they don't get resurrection or they wouldn't have put 75 pounds of spices on a dead body. Right? They're planning. They're doing. They're honoring one whom they felt was worthy of honor. And so Joseph receives the body and lays the body of Christ in the tomb that he had made that no one had laid in before. And Nicodemus brings all the spice that, 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 that Jews would wrap a body in. If you remember the story of Lazarus, as Lazarus comes out of the tomb, what did Jesus tell them to do? Unbind him. It's because he, would, he was wrapped with linen cloths and folded in the, in the, in, in the Included in the folds of the linen cloth would have been all kind of spices, these 75 pounds worth of spices that John records here. There's an interesting side note here that the amount of spice that Nicodemus brings points to the fact that this guy actually is a king. This is a crazy amount of spice, it seems. 
unless, unless we're burying royalty, unless we're burying a king. And so when Nicodemus brings a wheelbarrow full of spices to the tomb, he's bringing these spices to the tomb, recognizing the fact that this is no mere man in a tomb. This truly is a king. And there's something else going on here as Joseph and Nicodemus receive this body. What happens when a Jew, when a Jew touches a dead person? They become unclean. And they have to go through ritualistic cleansing to become clean again. And so by these two Jews, devout Jews, experts in the law Jews, for these two Jews to go and receive the body of Christ, they immediately become unclean and become disqualified for what? Passover. Passover is, to, is tomorrow. And so the one thing that motivates the rest of the Jews to say, hey, break his leg so we can get him out of here and our land isn't defiled, these two guys say, that doesn't matter. He is worth us being unclean in their theology in that moment. And so Jesus' death brings Joseph and Nicodemus into somewhat of an open confession of Christ. And so they're going to face wrath from their fellow Jews, obviously. And they're also going to quite likely face wrath from the Romans. And so just this example of Joseph and and Nicodemus coming forward reminds us that there really are no secret disciples in the economy of God. Why? Why is there no room for secret disciples in God's economy? Because there's no fear for disciples in the economy of God. Why would we fear? And according to his own word in Matthew 12, Jesus has to be in the grave three days and Joseph and Nicodemus accomplished this word of Christ by getting him there on Friday. So Friday is day one, Saturday is day two, Sunday is day three. And it's, it's really no accident here that, that the death of Christ has this effect of moving Joseph and moving Nicodemus to, to forsake this secrecy that they've held on to. They've, they've been operating by fear, but now they're boldly identifying with Christ and going to identify with Christ together. Another subtle r- reminder here that as Christians, we, we actually do need one another. Joseph doesn't go by himself. Nicodemus doesn't go by himself. But there's strength, there's courage as they come together and go and get the body and then prepare the body uh, for burial. So there's the glory of Christ in his death and there's the glory of Christ in his burial. And then number three, there's the glory of Christ in his work. The glory of Christ in his work. Remember, John referred to this day of preparation as the day before the Sabbath. And this Sabbath was the high day. So tomorrow, this is the evening of Friday, tomorrow is Passover. And so Christ being buried on Friday, the true Passover lamb is being buried, pointing to the fact that Christ's work at this point is complete. His work of atonement is complete. And so there's some neat bookends that, that guard this, this text. You see it there in verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and then when John concludes the thought before transitioning over to the resurrection event in chapter 20, he writes in verse 42, So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now to the worldly mind, Verse 42 is filled with terrible sadness, isn't it? Read it with me. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. 
And if John doesn't finish the rest of the story, it is a pretty sad deal. Right? They laid Jesus there. He's, he's dead. It's, it's game over. It's end of story. But to the redeemed mind, not to the worldly mind, but to the redeemed mind, verse 42 is actually filled with hope and joy for two reasons. One, we know what happens next. We really, truly know what happens next. Resurrection is coming. Do you realize that all that John has written under the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit has been leading to this moment? The work of the cross and the resurrection. So we know that the resurrection is coming. And so we read verse 42, not as simply the end of story, but the end of one chapter, the start of the next. And so we know what's coming. We'll look more at the resurrection next week. But there's another reason that for us who are redeemed, verse 42 is actually filled with hope and joy. We know the work that's represented and accomplished in the death of Christ. We know the work that's represented and accomplished in the death of Christ. Jesus did not die any ordinary death. He died the death of a human person. Let's be clear. His heart stopped beating. His, his lungs stopped pushing air through his body. His, his body ceased. And so he died. But his death was not a death like you and I are going to die. Jesus' death is the death of death. So when Christ dies, he doesn't, he doesn't die just like we die. He died a human death like we die, but his, his death spiritually was infinitely different. Jesus is the ultimate and the final and the complete Passover. Remember, John referred to this day of preparation in verse 31 and then in verse 42. What is his point here? Is that when they laid him in the tomb, the last Passover was offered to God. There's never another Passover that's needed. No more sacrifices necessary. Why? Because in Christ and in His death, the final sacrifice for sin is offered. The Passover is complete. Now, on the Saturday that's following the burial of Jesus, in, Jerusalem, in and around Jerusalem, thousands of lambs would die. In accordance to the law. Good religious folks would, would, would bring their offering to the priests and lambs would die in accordance, in accordance to the law. And, in, and according to the law, all these lambs that were offered at Passover had to be perfect. Exodus twelve five. Your lamb shall be without blemish. And you remember the, the institution of the Passover when it was set. The, God's people were in Egypt in bondage and God is going to deliver them out. And the death angel is going to come upon Egypt. It's the final of the plagues that, that God enacts on Egypt. And to spare God's people, he says, you need to kill a lamb and consume the lamb and put the lamb's blood on the doorpost of your house. And when the death angel comes through Egypt, he'll see the, the blood on the doorpost of your house and he'll pass over your house. You will be spared. Your people will be spared. Your firstborn sons will not die. But for anyone who's whose doorpost is not covered with the blood of a lamb, the firstborn is going to die. Thus, the Passover. And, but the instruction about the lamb was that the lamb had to be without blemish, reminding us of the value of sacrifice that's offered to God. So all of these lambs were sacrificed on Saturday. And just think about the picture that's going on here. 
as all of these lambs are being sacrificed by the Jews, the perfect lamb of God is in the grave. Having been sacrificed as the ultimate and final fulfillment of Passover for all time. Christ, our Passover lamb, is the ultimate and final perfect sacrifice that is eternally offered to God. Hold your finger here in, in, in John 19 and turn to the right. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1 with me. I want you to see, I want you to see what, what Peter wrote about this sacrifice of Christ. He is our Passover lamb. He is our ultimate and final sacrifice. So 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18. Peter wrote, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. So you were were ransomed, you were brought back from the ways of sin (coughs) inherited from your forefathers, not with stuff like money, not with silver or gold, valuable things of this world, verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You weren't redeemed by stuff that gets burned up in fire. You were redeemed by that which is of infinite value, the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so we have to remember, church, that the cost for us to be forgiven of sin was and is and forever will be the precious blood of Christ. And so for us, it's not all that weird to sing of this fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Like to the world, they're like, wait, what? Blood? Are cannibals? Like, what? Crazy? What is going on with you? But for those of us who are redeemed, (laughs) we know the power and the necessity of this blood. And so for us, when we talk about the blood of Christ, it's not morbid talk. It's not hush hush talk. No, it's joyful. It's exuberant talk. It's redemptive talk. You're you're not ransomed from from the feudal ways of your fathers with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. If you know Christ, you've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And this burial event in John chapter 19 reminds us that Christ's work is sufficient. And if you are redeemed, The blood of Christ has been applied to your sin debt. And there is no sin or no amount of sin that you bring to the table that is of greater value than the blood of Christ. The precious blood of Christ is applied to your sin and thereby you have been redeemed. So John goes to this Passover event at the end of chapter 19 in conjunction with with the death of Christ Reminding us that Christ is our Passover lamb. Why do Christians not offer sacrifices? Because we don't have to. It's been offered. The ultimate and final sacrifice has been offered. Why did every Old Testament saint offer sacrifices? Because they were looking toward the ultimate sacrifice that would be offered. And when Christ's blood is spilt, 
and his body is given for sin, all of those faith-saturated Passover sacrifices through the ages were activated by Christ and for the glory of Christ. Now, when back to John chapter 19, when John turns the corner and goes to chapter 20, he no longer refers to the Passover. The resurrection stories, the appearances of Christ, there's, there's no longer any mention of the Passover. Why? Because it's done. It's done. It's complete. There's nothing else that has to be offered for sin. And let's be honest. Let's be honest. Practically, like mentally and theologically, we say yes to this truth. But practically, sometimes we're just a little more reluctant to buy in. You mean the blood of Christ was sufficient and insufficient to cover this part of my life? To atone for this sin? To atone for this history that I bring? And oftentimes, Christians can live a somewhat defeated life and for us to live a defeated life, not thinking that, that Christ's work actually atones for all of our sin is actually an offense toward God. Because when we start to live that way, we say, God, your, your work was sufficient for that person, but I don't think it was sufficient for me. I think I'm too bad. I think I've done too much. I think there's too much sin. But we're reminded that we're not redeemed by perishable things, but we're redeemed by the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb, without blemish or without spot. This sacrifice of Christ will never be repeated. It's done. It's done. This sacrifice, this sacrifice of Christ, as Christ has shed His blood, is completely sufficient for our sin to be removed completely sufficient for our sin to be removed. John refers to him in his letter, 1 John 2, 2, as the propitiation for our sins. He, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. This Passover lamb, this Christ who is now dead and buried, is the sacrifice that bears God's wrath for us. And so God no longer looks at us with wrath. He looks at us with favor. We're no longer objects of His wrath, but we become objects of His love. We are forgiven. We are redeemed. We are reconciled. We are made right. And it's not because any one of us or the collective group of us are good enough to achieve this on our own. Like, hopefully we we realize this, that there's If it's left up to me and my goodness, I'm done. But it's all of Christ. And so for for us, for the redeemed community, for the Christian, the death of Christ is not a tragedy, but it's actually triumph. His death was and is real, but it was only momentary. Necessary for us to be reconciled to God. And so when we view the death of the only perfect person who ever lived on the planet, 
We don't see it as tragedy. We see it as necessary. And we see it as glorious. It pushes us toward humility. To know that God in His love sent Christ into the world for the sole purpose of dying. For those who deserve to die. And these are some of the aspects of the gospel that we truly never graduate from. We never move on from the fact that our sin is atoned for. We never move on from the fact that the blood of Christ truly is precious. We never move on from the fact that because of what Christ accomplished on our behalf through His crucifixion, we can be forgiven of all of it. Of all of who we are and all of what we've done. And we truly see glory in death. And so while onlookers would see Jesus' body being placed in a tomb with just sadness, and even the parties participating here were certainly just hammered with sadness, we look at this and we see glory. We see glory. We see the glory of the one who was hung on the tree, who became a curse for us. Who became what we should have been. So that then we can become what we could never have been. You see, in this, in this moment, we're reminded of this great transaction that occurs when one repents and believes on the Lord Jesus. Christ takes the penalty for our sin. And in the same moment, God gives to us the righteousness of Christ. And so when the blood of Christ is applied to us as sinners, we are forgiven of sin, yes. There's another dynamic that we have to be clear about as well. Not only are we forgiven of sin, we are also given the righteousness of Christ. And so when God looks at us as His children, He doesn't just see forgiven, forgiven, forgiven. He sees forgiven and righteous. Forgiven and righteous. This is 2 Corinthians 5 kind of language. The the great exchange that happens when we repent and believe. And so the question that the text begs, have you trusted in the sacrifice of Christ? Are you trusting in some self-righteous, man-made, religious effort? You're trusting in your own morality? If you're trusting in your own morality, just know you can never measure up. Unless you can attain to the holiness of God. And since you're not Jesus, you can't. And so you need Christ. You're not going to be good enough. The Bible's clear. Sin makes us condemned before God. And so we trust in Christ. And we trust in this precious blood of the Lamb. Like that of a lamb without blemish or without spot. And for us Christians, for those of us who have trusted in this precious blood, (coughs) it's good, right, and necessary for us, us to be reminded that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. And so now we live like we are cleansed from all sin. And so while this certainly, this 
in no way gives us freedom to sin because we know that well we can sin and then we're going to get we're going to get forgiveness. Romans six says no, don't be a moron here. No, we don't pursue sin just because we're going to be forgiven. We pursue righteousness because we are forgiven. We pursue righteousness because God has given to us the righteousness of Christ. And so there is glory in this death. Have you trusted in this death? And then secondly, are you constantly trusting in this death? Let's pray. Father, Lord, these scenes at the death of Christ remind us of His work. His work for Your glory and for our good. Lord, we We confess that as your sons and daughters, for those of us who are redeemed, <coughs> Lord, we are really quick to just lose sight of the true beauty and the power of the blood of Christ. And that his shed blood was necessary. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And so his blood being shed was necessary for us to be made right with you. <laughs> Father, if there's somebody here who hasn't trusted in you, who has not repented and believed, would you give them grace to do so this morning? Would you give them grace even as we celebrate this work we've been talking about through the Lord's Supper? Or give them grace to repent and believe in this moment. How glorious that would be. Lord, as we even turn our attention toward the Lord's Supper as your church, Lord, use this weekly reminder to remind us yet again of what Christ has accomplished for for your glory and for our good. Thank you, Father, that the work of Christ leaves nothing incomplete or undone. There's no way that we could ever fill up anything that would be lacking. Or there is no lack. Thank you that the work of Christ was and is and forever will be sufficient for us to be forgiven of sin and to be made right with you. We love you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.